Hello, and welcome back to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, where we look at Tolkien through the lens of adaptation. Today, we are talking about The Rings of Power, Episode 6, Udun. I'm your host, Michael. And I'm Jen. And I'm excited to get into this one. This is an action-packed episode. Oh my goodness, I was at the edge of my seat. I was biting my nails, chewing them down to the, to the nail beds. It was it was exciting. It was a great episode. Loved it. Was, it. It, it was a good episode. It was, And you know what made it even better? I had a handful of Hobbit hand pies. Hobbit, Hobbit hand pies. Not only does it roll <laughs> off the tongue, it tastes delicious. It was good. Delicious. It was good. It's like it, they're like pasties, Cornish pasties. Um, hearty fare. Simple. I was but I was delicious. proud of myself. They're they're beautiful. They're brown. So th- these recipes came from Chris Rachel Osland, who's been giving us recipes for three weeks, and she is great. Uh, she's mm, giving us another so batch good. of recipes. Next week, and she's the author of An Unexpected Cookbook, which I wager many people have actually already heard of or maybe even purchased that cookbook. It's a really good one. And uh, we're going to have her on the stream this coming week, I think, to talk about you know her research into the food that shows up in, in Tolkien's work. And uh, Tolkien was actually very particular about the foods he included and the, the crops that he allowed to be represented. You know, he, he wanted it to be historically accurate for Middle Earth, or at least, you know, obviously it's not real history, but he was very thoughtful about that. So she's going to come on and talk about that. And uh, Hobbit hand pies. I almost didn't make them just because I was intimidated by like, you know, I don't know, baking dough and pastry. And I was like, this is going to be a lot of work. But the trick is uh, you buy the dough pre-made and you have your partner make them for you. That's the real trick. That's- <laughs> <laughs> You're a cheater. Cheater, know, cheater, pumpkin eater. I cheated. But they were good. They ended up being really good and, and uh, beautiful. And uh, I want to mention before we get into the all the other stuff, our featured artist this week is Anna Coolies from the Czech Republic. Beautiful art. Beautiful art. And beautiful. we're going to be uh, raffling off two of her pieces on our stream with Fellowship of Fans on Sunday. Uh, any two from her store, you get to pick. So uh, if you want to come join us on Sunday and uh, hang out during the stream and chat, if you put in a super chat, uh, each dollar in the super chat will be one raffle ticket, and we're gonna raffle it off at the end and announce a winner. And you get to pick any two items from her Etsy shop. And there's tons of good stuff. I'm I'm boning up on my uh, Tolkien collection right now, just because there's been all these uh, discount codes and everything from the the artists. Um, so they've all been really generous. I'm really thankful. I'm just gonna have a wall of Tolkien by the end. It'll be amazing. A whole wall of my house. I never really was into buying. I mean, art in general, but even Tolkien art, which you would think I'd be into getting a lot of it. I just never, you know, I don't know, never bothered. Just wasn't the way I expressed my fandom. But now with doing this for, for the show and really focusing on the artists and, uh, of course, all the deals that they're, they're providing, it's like, yeah, I'm going to get a few. I'm going to get a few prints. Some of them keep, some for gifts. You know, it's great. Yeah, absolutely. I love the maps. I'm a big maps person. Um, yeah. There's been really really gorgeous stuff last week kip's kip rasmussen stuff man so stunning yeah um and the stuff that these folks can do freehand just blows my mind like from their imagination oh my from their oh mind my i can't believe it that's just visual, not my skill set at all are absolutely amazing to me it, amazing. It, I, they can look at a blank canvas and see something there you know all i see is just my own failure when i look at a blank canvas <laughs> Like, exactly oh. yeah <laughs> daunting it's daunting yeah, yeah. it's kind of like writing a book you see a blank page and it's like you know right. there's a deep well of of sorrow that i just fall into you gotta Whereas respect those artists a yeah, true author absolutely. is like oh there's a book there i can see a book on that page it's just amazing 
Um, yeah, so, uh, and I should remember, her code this week, discount code is ROP Watch Party. So if you go to her Etsy shop, uh, etsy.com backslash shop backslash slash coolies, coolizu art, that's K U L I S Z U art, uh, you get 10% off all items in her store. So please go check her out and, and, and support her. Now, before we get into the actual episode, I wanted to mention we actually got some some good mail I wanted to read. We do get mail, uh, uh, not that infrequently, but we don't always read it um, just because it's, it's hard to find the time. But this one really stuck out to me, and this is uh, from our friend Marilyn Pekila, uh, and she had something to say about the Mithril origin story that we had to spend a lot of time talking about from episode five, which has been a topic of conversation for, for everybody. It's been a really interesting sort of lightning rod of conversation yeah. for folks. And... Um, she had a comment that I, I think is really, really good to, to point out. So she says, I did want to point out something concerning the whole Silmaril in a tree producing Mithril story. If I remember correctly, one of you said that the battle between the pure elf and the evil Balrog was a good reflection of Tolkien's worldview. While it's true that it's very easy to see his stories as being about the battle between good and evil, this is an oversimplified notion of what Tolkien thought, according to my readings. Good and evil are not equally balanced and independent entities, contrary to what the Mithril origin story said. In Tolkien's world, good has a strength of its own, and evil is simply an absence of good, a consequence of poor choices. The dualist notion of there being an eternal fight between good and evil is referred to as the Manichaean or Manichaean heresy, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing it, that's the word I've only ever uh, read and not heard pronounced. Um, Tolkien did not believe in this. He was more of a Boethian, in that in his understanding, good is something that exists, while evil is an absence of good. Good does not need evil in order to exist. Good is in and of itself eternally existing. Good is a noun, while evil is an adjective, if you will, in Tolkien's mind. Moreover, I find it very difficult to think of a single Tolkien character who did not embody both good and the outcome of poor choices. The whole, even Melkor was good to begin with story. I'm afraid, though, that this understanding of the nature of good and evil is not popular amongst contemporary culture and can be very difficult to portray in visual media. It's complicated, and none of us is off the hook, so to speak, so it can also be uncomfortable. So I thought that was a really, really important thing to point out. Um, Mm. When we talked about it, what we really said is it felt very Tolkienian, I think was what we actually said. It felt very Tolkienian. Not specifically that it was a reflection of his worldview. I don't. I don't think we said that, but we did say it was very Tolkienian, and um, I, I still think that's the case, just sort of in a very general, abstract way, in terms of the presentation of uh, an elf fighting a Balrog over a tree and a Silmaril in the tree. Like in a very generic sense, the the imagery and everything felt Tolkienian to me. But she's absolutely right that in terms of the worldview that view that's being represented, it 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 is very inaccurate. And I remember thinking when I was watching it, and I pointed this out during our Sunday stream with Fellowship of Fans, that there's kind of a silliness to the oversimplification of that myth in the story. The idea, the pure elf pours all his good into the tree, and the evil Balrog pours all of Which his hate into the tree. Which is why it may not be true. Spoiler right. alert. Well, I hope that's the, I hope that's the case. I I'm that's sure the case. that's the case now. Um, yeah, and not everybody's on board with that, but that is a theory that we advocated very like right from the start, and I, I think that everyone's kind of jumping on board with that, that it is... Uh, it is false within the world of rings of power, but sort of the oversimplification of the, the pouring the good into the tree and pouring the evil into the tree and sort of equal, uh, uh, but opposing forces. It just felt that did feel wrong to me from a worldview perspective and, and just silly. Um, most importantly, 
and uh, and she puts a m- much finer point on why it's wrong, which I don't think I could have uh, elaborated on it as eloquently as she does. The dueling notions of these different worldviews, one being Manichaean and one being Boethian, um, and it's just absolutely right. I mean, Tolkien was a, a Catholic, and I remember growing up in the church, this notion that what makes it hell is the absence of God. God is totally absent from hell. It's not the fire and the brimstone and the torture and the demons poking you with pitchforks, right? Um, it's that there is no God, no presence of God in hell. And that's what makes it hell. It's the absence of good. And mm-hmm. Tolkien builds that into the legendarium um, right at the yeah. roots. So, yeah, very, very important point, And I'm glad she emailed us about it. Yeah, absolutely. And it segues so beautifully into this episode. I think they toyed with that a lot. They're toying with this idea very much in this series with nothing is evil in the beginning. Um, And they're exploring the idea of evil. What is evil, you know, and is someone fated, destined to be evil? um, Or are they choosing it? And at their core, at their essence, what are they? Like that is a big question in this series, you know. We see yeah, that with and Adar. I'm I'm not fully sure how uh, what direction they're taking the whole thing. Like this theme of light and dark from the very very beginning, from the opening scene, mm-hmm. is critical, right? I mean, this is what Finrod says to Galadriel in the in the mm-hmm. the the scene that sets the stage for the whole series. You know, she asks him basically, "How do you know light from dark?" And he gives this whole you know parable about a ship and the reason that a ship can float and a rock cannot, uh, a stone cannot, it's because of blah, 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 you know, talking about the reflection of light. So we're talking about reflected light and um, how do you know the true light from the reflected light and the the darkness of the water, that's evil and the, the light is, is good. And that seemed to me to be sort of a, not a very Boethian concept, not a very Boethian representation of what light is, although it was playing with it because Evil includes false light. So I don't know. I'm kind of rambling and not making much coherent sense here. But um, I'm not sure if their exploration of light and dark, as deliberate as it is, is entirely consistent with Tolkien's approach to light and dark. And I still need to think a bit about it before I really decide. And I'm keeping an eye on it. But it's, it's just an interesting thing to watch. Well, I think we'll get to it when we get to, you know, Adar's plot line. Um, well, we should really dig into that in the conversation mm-hmm. with Galadriel, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think we should start from the tippy top because we got a refreshing, to me, this was very refreshing that we got to follow one storyline, yeah. one yes. peoples. We got to follow the Southlands <laughs> start to finish. I loved that after having, you know, all these different storylines, which sometimes feels disjointed. It was really, really yeah. nice to have just one. Oh, it's it was so nice because and it was better. It just it fits so much better. It's really, really hard. I mean, let's be candid about that. It is hard to tell four stories, you know, at the same time. Stories that are really, really segregated where the characters are not united. Um, and here, you know, it was one story with the Southlanders, but Numenor and their plotline joining the Southlanders plotline was a part of that. So it was like it was two plot lines, but then they come together, right? And uh, it, it made it so much more compelling and easy to follow the pacing. They could control it a lot better because that's yeah. something that you always have to struggle with when you have to cut away. You have to choose when you cut away from a scene to go to a completely different scene that has no bearing on the other plot right. line. You know, you're always going to feel not always, but it's really hard to do it in a way that doesn't make you feel like you're getting interrupted and you're losing momentum. 
and they didn't have to deal with that in this episode. They were able to really focus on the pacing and momentum of this single plot line. And yeah, they would cut away, but these are different characters within this same plot line. You know, you're going talking, you're looking at Adar and and those folks, and you know that that has a bearing on the the Southlanders who you just left, right? And uh, and even when it comes to Numenor, you know that the Numenorians are heading towards the Southlanders, so you are kind of tracking that in your mind, and everything builds on. on Every scene builds on the other, and it makes it much more right. compelling to watch. Yeah, totally agree. I was in it. I was so immersed in it this time. Um, I thought it was really fantastic. A little gory for my taste, frankly. Mm. So shockingly <laughs> uh, gory. Yeah, but the, the blood. You want to talk about the blood? Like the was way a they lot chose of to blood. Was a lot of blood. A lot of blood. It was, it was like bor- verging on like horror film in some aspects. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. It was almost like tipping that their hat to uh, Jackson mm-hmm. and his, uh, but not even like Jackson in the in Jackson's Fellowship films or, or Lord of the Rings films. It was like his pre Lord of the Rings films when he was doing those like uh, those mm-hmm. sort of schlocky um, B-grade horror movies where it was like over-the-top gore, you know? It just felt, it felt like they were paying homage to that a little bit because of the blood. Like, the way the blood would squirt out, it did not look realistic. And it was I don't think mm-hmm. it was designed to be realistic. It was like sort of a... Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a little bit over-the-top deliberately. And it didn't bother me. First of all, I don't get squeamish about gore. That doesn't bother me. And uh, it, it wasn't um, it wasn't to the point where it was silly. You know, over mm-hmm. the top, but it was like just a little bit too much, so it wasn't realistic. And I just thought that was an interesting choice. Yeah, same. I mean, it definitely. I thought there was good tension. It kept the tension up. Um, and uh, yeah, for me, it was just like just on the verge, right on the line of where I would would not watch it. You uh-huh. know, but it was good. I I liked it. I thought it was so well done. The music, man, the music was incredible. Well, really I have a question. Compelling. I have a question for you. I mean, we've both okay. talked about how we don't like action that much. I mean, I, I I appreciate action movies when they are action movies, but I don't like it when it's just empty mm-hmm. action, to, to pointless, uh, masturbatory action. You know, mm-hmm. and we were both worried that they would fall into that trap. Like, oh, it's a we have to make the show uh, spectacular and in a negative way, meaning like they have to increase the spectacle. So all, it's going to be tons of action, random fighting, and it's just, there's not going to be room for actual plot. So far, that hasn't been an issue. Today no. was a mm-hmm. very, very action-packed episode. Yeah. How did you think they did with that? I mean, we knew there's there's going to be an action-packed episode here or there. Did you feel right. like it was empty action? Was it, no. uh, did it drive the narrative? How did you like it? I thought it, I was so uh, blown away by this. And I thought it was actually, by all accounts, I should not have liked this episode. Because as you said, I'm not an action-heavy person. Like, I love a a nice slow burn. I'm more uh, concerned with the characters. Um, Tolkien himself wasn't very into battle scenes. But I thought that this episode was so artfully done. And I double-checked. So this was Char- This was a different director. This was Charlotte Brandstrom, this right. episode. Bravo, hats off to Charlotte Brandstrom, because there were scenes in this episode that were just absolutely so tasteful, so well done. It was a perfect blend of action with like these very quiet, beautiful, 
intimate moments. It was a very good balance between the two. It absolutely furthered the plot. I mean, so much happened. Mount Doom erupted. I mean, there was just... There was so much jam-packed into this episode, but it was perfect. The pacing was perfect. Nearly everything, nearly everything worked to me. We'll get, we'll get to it. But um, yeah, yeah I, I felt really... great about it. And I felt like it was an appropriate time to have this much action in the series. Uh-huh. So th- up until this point, I mean, we're past the midpoint. We've only got two episodes left. Yeah. So up until this point, we haven't had a battle scene, but this was our Helm's Deep, right? And we needed it. We actually right. needed something to jar us out of, jar some of these viewers out of the slumber that they may have fallen into. Yeah, I totally agree. I thought it was the right point in the season to do something like this. It, it's been gearing up, right? So it was a payoff. You know, it, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the drama and tension of the battle scenes was earned because they waited a little bit. Um, and I thought the action served the plot at almost every mm. turn. It was very mm-hmm. action heavy, but it uh, actually, for an action episode, there were a lot of scenes of quiet reflection, like, you know, um, there were moments between Arendir and Bronwyn, so there were uh, there were a lot of pauses, I guess, in the action. Mm-hmm. It wasn't go 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 for fifty mm. minutes, mm-hmm. and even when there was action happening, we didn't spend a lot of time on like special effects or ridiculous fight scenes. Um, uh, there was a ridiculous fight scene, though. Just because the- there was one. <laughs> <laughs> there was, but that was too about, long. That was one of my Aaron Deere and the big, big orc. Aaron Deere and the big Hulk. Orc. I like that. Oh, I like. No, it. it was too long. It was. Too it was long. like. It, it was like thirty seconds. No, it was not thirty seconds. It was like five minutes, <laughs> and they only cut away like once. And I was like, "All right, wrap it up." It was a little too long, but I'll let that one slide. Other than that. Uh, I actually like that one. That. that one worked for me. All but right. other than that, no. I mean, and, and generally the. Uh, while the action scenes were going on, there were character moments. And, I, mm-hmm, I, you know, mm-hmm. this is hot takes. This is our higgity higgity hot takes set. So I don't have oh, yeah, everything we need at the top the of my head. Song. But um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let that be your job to go with the theme song. Okay. Higgity higgity hot takes. Okay, right, you did it. That was it for All this right. week. I'll do a different one next week. Okay. Oh, okay. Keep, All right. It'll on. be a rotating. It'll be a rotating theme song. Yeah. Um, but there were character moments in during the battle right so we followed the characters and so there was mm-hmm. plot going on there was tension going on and most of the tension most of the plot was not related to just like you know people punching each other people stabbing each other you know there were other things right. going on and so i i like that i like it when action is not the primary thing that you're watching there, there's a, another plot happening and the action is happening around it and that's what they did and i appreciated that very much oh yes and there was there were so many peaks and valleys in this episode. You know, it was like a roller coaster of emotion. Uh, and I felt like ta- fully taken on that ride mm-hmm. of seeing all of this play out. You know what um, the peak was for me? What's that? When the big orc was holding Erinder down and his eye was no. just leaking like a sieve. It was pouring like Gross. a faucet on his that face. That was too much. That was, <laughs> yeah, I was like, all right, fast forward. Next. I was like, have you seen those, uh, the Old Spice commercial that's going on right now with like, uh, and, and it's like basically a CGI Dolph Lundgren. So it's like Dolph Lundgren when he's a, in his youth. And it's like a fake scene <laughs> no. from an action movie. And he's holding somebody, like someone's falling and he's holding on to him uh, and keeping him from falling. But his armpit is like spewing water, like sweaty water. 
it's an Old Spice commercial. So it's, a, it's an antiperspirant commercial. So he's like spewing water at the guy that he's he's holding, and uh, and the guy hands him Old Spice, and he, you know, puts it on his armpit to stop all the water from spraying all over the guy, and then the guy falls because of all the water. Um, that's what that scene reminded me of because the orc's eye was just like spewing an obscene amount of blood on Arendir for like no good it was reason. Was gross. It was super gross. And then Bronwyn heroically saves him. Um, yeah, well, you knew that that was coming. That was the purpose of all that. We had to we had to have a, a Bronwyn hero moment, and um, I appreciated that as well. Yeah, yeah, I appreciated that she saved him. Um, but let's start with that artful shot. Love the shot at the very beginning where he's where Adar is reaching in the ground with mm-hmm. his hand and planting those seeds. Yeah. Um, and it's a close up, you know, of his gloved hand. Yeah. With his armor. Love that scene. And I loved his speech to the orcs and those wonderful practical effect orcs. Oh, they're so good. So the design of that shot, of that that uh, sequence, is exactly the same as the design of the, the scene with Bronwyn. When, uh, what is it, two episodes ago? I don't know. Maybe it was the last. Maybe it was episode five. Time is a flat circle. I keep forgetting but the the scene where it opens up on her and you just see her feet walking up the stairs like very calmly and you don't know what's going on the speech but then she's giving a speech to like a waiting crowd it was the exact same thing we get a close-up of something really small his hand Mm. and he's planting seeds you have no idea that there's a waiting crowd but then it kind of zooms out pans up and then you see the waiting crowd good catch i like the parallelism there um i like that it's deliberate I don't really like the structure of those scenes. I didn't like it with Bronwyn. I didn't like it with uh, Adar because it felt unnatural, more unnatural with Bronwyn. Like it felt um, unnatural with Bronwyn, but it didn't feel unnatural with Adar. Adar. No, it did all. not feel unnatural with Adar because it would make it makes sense that all of his legions are waiting. Rally the troops for him, you know, waiting at attention while he does whatever he he does. It didn't yeah. feel natural with Bronwyn. I didn't understand why like that scene was set the way it was when it was revealed. And why her? We still don't have a why Bronwyn. Like I'm a, I don't need the why Bronwyn because like leaders emerge, you know, and I think the idea is like yeah. she emerged mm-hmm. as a leader. She's the one who proved to everyone that the orcs were a threat and she got them to leave. So she just kind of emerged as a leader because she was the person who was taking action. But I don't know. Anyway, um but I did like the the scene with Adar and even if we hadn't had that um, scene later in the episode where Bronwyn tells, or when Erendir tells Bronwyn that it's an old Elvish tradition to plant the seeds, it was very obvious that that this was some sort of ritual that Adar was observing that was like from his past. It felt very Elvish, right? Not Orcish. Mm. It felt very Elvish. It did. Do you? What do you make of that tradition? The you know the. Because it is, this is an invented tradition. It's not from the books. Yes. That let's right. plant, you know, these seeds. And the, the, what they say is um, in defiance of death. New life in defiance of death. Yeah. Um, I haven't thought too much about it. I, do, I, I like it just fine. Um, I think its narrative function in the show is to cause us to empathize with Adar a little bit. To give him some humanity, right? Because or see orcs, that he's still clinging to the part of him that had that has. Yeah, and we saw that in the last episode, right, where he's looking up at the sun and he's lamenting that that it's going to go away, and that the part mm-hmm. of him that seeks the warmth is also going to basically be destroyed. So mm-hmm. we already knew that there's there's some old part of him that is not entirely corrupted, not entirely evil, 
Mm-hmm. Um, so we've already been told that. And we're just, I think this is just another scene to communicate that, that there's some link between him and the other, the good elves that we've seen, Arendir, you know, our protagonists. And um, obviously this pays off later in the episode when they really, through dialogue with Galadriel, establish the humanity of Adar and by implication, the rest of the orcs, which I don't know if you want to, I don't know. I don't want to jump too quickly to that, but that's obviously the part of this episode that is the most interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I really liked it as a concept too. It was, I, I had to think about it for a little, like, does that track with what elves would say in defiance of death? Because, yeah. you know, thinking of higher level themes, like death is not the enemy in Tolkien's world. Like defying death is not necessarily a motivation for the elves. That's oh, that's you know that's a really good point. I mean, um, so I did start to spiral about that a little, and then I was like, all right, I'm gonna reel this in because I do like it in the show, um, but I don't know that it like completely tracks of with some of the messages coming out of like book. It's lore. it's like something but, that the Numenorians, the late stage Numenorians, would say when right. they are rebelling against their own mortality. Right? They exactly. don't like death. Right? So that they would. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so I don't know that they nailed it there, but I do really like the ritual, the practice, the concept um, of I do it, like the of, idea that, that they you know, would have something. If they know they're going to be going into battle and they're going to be killing or be killed, but, mm-hmm. you know, they probably expect, you know, they're elves, so they're whooping ass all the time. <laughs> so right. we're like, we're going to kill a bunch of people. We're going to kill orcs. We're going to kill whatever. Um, let's plant some trees to offset that, to balance the scales a little bit, you know, new life. I do like that, that, the new life is a tree. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously there's a, a huge emphasis on trees throughout that feels very Tolkienian. Um, mm-hmm. So I like, I like it. Okay. One thing that you talked about spiraling that I kind of spiraled about is when Arendir described the ritual to Bronwyn, Bronwyn then said to him the exact words that Adar said. So new life to combat. In defiance, death. Of, In death. defiance of death. She says those exact lines so was she already familiar with this ritual and like had heard those lines because I mean, she's Arendir, been around a lot of elves so she's been around a lot of elves they but told her it feels like Arendir is the only one that she's been chummy with right mm. and Arendir was telling her for the first time so where was she why would she already know it you know did that not bother you at all it didn't occur to me but yeah I don't know. I mean, maybe she had other elf friends or lovers. Just kidding. No. <laughs> I don't She's know. She's got a type. She's got a type. <laughs> and it's the pointy ears. Um, and yeah, it's, I it's, love not the- like, it's not like a lore issue. So like, <laughs> I find myself getting less bothered by lore changes and stuff, which other people seem to be freaking out about from time to time. But just like when a scene is, there's an inconsistency within the scene, with, within the show, like an incongruity or something that doesn't make sense. That's what bothers me. Like, at least have everything make mm-hmm. perfect sense in the show. And Arendir is teaching her about this ritual, and yet somehow she already knows about it, like verbatim. And I'm like, ah, uh, why? How? Yeah, it takes you out of it just a little bit. Although the scene between those two was beautiful. Yes. Like in every other way, man, those actors are perfect. Ishmael Cruz Cordova. Oh, he's yeah. he is so talented. He's and they're gonna so ha- they're gonna go off and have a family. 
You know? Well, you see, that scene is so great because you see yeah. the desperation in their faces, like that they yes. want this future, but they're not even sure that they'll survive this battle. Right. Like they desperately want to survive and be together and ha- and she wants to believe what mm-hmm. he's saying to her. But you see it all over their faces that like they have hope, but they're also, yeah. you know, anxious that this might not come yeah. to fruition. Um, And then they share that kiss, which is perfect and tastefully done. And it zooms out yep. to a wide shot. That scene was great. That was 10 out of 10, like finally. And they made us wait for it. So it it totally worked. I mean, I I liked it so much. And it it creates a lot of tension in the viewer for as you watch what Mm -hmm. they're going through. Because like now you're really invested in their fates, right? Because you can you 100% believe that they could go off and have this like happy family if Mm -hmm. only they get through it. Because they're like, if we survive this, we're going to be a happy family. And you believe that that could be the case because Arendir and Theo are now getting along, right? If if they hadn't had that prior scene um, where Arendir was teaching Theo uh, how to shoot his bow and he was giving this, giving them all this uh, sort of, kind of like fatherly advice and and uplifting his spirits, if they hadn't had that scene, then it wouldn't have worked as well because Arendir and Theo, or Theo doesn't like Arendir, right? So there would still be that issue to resolve. But mm-hmm. because those two are now buddies, it's like, oh, they really could live happily ever after if just they survive. That's mm-hmm. the only thing standing in the way, and you want them to live happily ever after. So I was like, I'm like, when Bronwyn gets shot with the arrow, I'm like, no, Ugh. no, no, devastating, no. yeah, devastating. There were so many moments of devastation in this episode. Like I said, peaks and valleys, and one of them was when Bronwyn gets shot, and the other is when yeah. you realize with horror when that when Erondir realizes with horror that these are their these are their village people that they've been fighting and killed, just killed, not other orcs. That right. moment, oh, it was it was so tricksy and it was absolutely so effective because you just see the look of horror on his face when he sees that this blood is red. Right. Um, again, so much blood. But um, yeah, that was <laughs> that was really well done as well because it kept us it kept everyone heightened, right? Like there's, yeah. they're sort of triumphant after this battle, but uh oh, you realize, you know, it's right. not over. And that happened several times in the episode, and yet it didn't. It still, it worked. It didn't feel overused. Yeah, it's uh, just a because, lot of reversals, you know. I mean, the the villagers, their plan with the tower, like it worked. It 100 mm-hmm. percent worked. And I don't, I don't know how all, all those orcs escaped. I mean, their numbers did not seem that yeah, it much seemed smaller. It seems like a lot of orcs yeah. got out of there. <laughs> maybe, maybe I didn't get a proper head count the first time around. Maybe like a lot did die and this was a diminished force, but it sure seemed like they still had a pretty big army. But um, And then, you know, battle number two, uh, it's a very, very large army, but the villagers' plan, again, seems to work like perfectly. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. But then you realize like, Adar is actually pretty crafty. He saw it coming the whole time and he 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 advanced his expendable forces, you know, not even his orcs, not his children, just the villagers who he really doesn't care about. Sends them in so they're just slaughtering their own and then uh, after that battle's done and they're weakened, we're just going to crush you. And they would have won. Like the Southlanders would have been 100% wiped out. Yeah. If not for the uh timely arrival of the Numenorians. Yes. In a scene that very much echoed and I think was designed to echo the ride of the Rohirrim, right? Yeah, it was perfect. There were so many wonderful callbacks. Let's talk about another perfect callback. Chase scene on horseback yeah, between right. Galadriel and Adar. 
that was so and she's you know whispering elvish to the horse spurring the horse on um and it's in the trees in the forest yeah. it was so much like fellowship of the ring chase scene with arwen nazgul. and the nazgul yeah. but it was yeah it was wonderful like the music was very there were it was like chorus cor- and um choral music and uh there was a lot of like quick jump shots and camera switching um yeah the camera work was definitely designed to echo those scenes i was waiting for galadriel to get hit by a branch and get a little cut on her cheek like it was <laughs> it was so similar i thought i was for sure that they were going to do that it was but, great though it was, I, I loved it i was like yes oh this was great uh it was a really good scene but yeah we got a couple really good galadriel scenes that was a great one um her dialogue in the ship with Isildur and Elendil, mm-hmm. I thought mm-hmm. that was really, really wonderful. Um, and I want to say that there were some highlights of dialogue in this episode and there were some low low points. Uh, once again, we get a lot of high highs and a lot of low lows. Uh, but Galadriel felt like on the ship we saw a side of her that was, again, a little more relatable. Um. And when she's talking to Isildur and he says the line, um, he says about elves having foresight or keen are the eyes of the elves, I believe he says. Yeah. Directly from the books. So there was a couple lines in this series that were very, very nearly from the books, very closely resemble um, dialogue in the books. And those were the best scenes. Well, and and the line straight from the books that was the most conspicuous to me was Bronwyn's mm-hmm. um, uh, discussion with Theo, where Theo said, you remember what you used to say to me as a kid whenever I was scared? Will you say it to me now? And uh, she says, in the end, this shadow is but a small and passing thing. There is light and high beauty forever beyond its reach, ripped straight from the pages of The Return yeah. of the King. And my, fav- wish- my favorite scene in all of Lord of the Rings, my favorite lines in all from all Lord of the Rings. So good. But we need more of that. More, more, more. I just want to scream it from the rooftops because that was fantastic. But the problem is, you know, it's juxtaposed with so many rough spots in this show as well. So what were some examples of the well, the, low lows? the example is in the same scene. So in the scene between Bronwyn and Theo, you know, I wish that they had the problem is they had to couch it in like, what did you used to say to me at bedtime? And then she says this beautiful speech that feels and is very Tolkienian language. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if he would have just, it feels so much better than everything else. It's, it's, it's so much more elevated than everything else we're hearing that it stands out. Whereas I wish that everything were just on that level. Um, because I wish he would have said something like, you know, is it all hopeless, mother? Something like that. Is it all, is there any hope? You know, instead he says, what was it you used to say to me as a right. child? It just feels that, uh, yeah. What right, I mean so to like say is. Her, her normal dialogue, the things she would normally say are not at that level. So they couldn't just have a conversation where she then says that. No, exactly. We, That's what I'm so trying to say. So they had to create an excuse. Yes. Like a yes. construct like a, for her to put that in. Yeah, yeah. I get what you're yes. saying. Now, juxtapose that scene. Take that scene and then then put it side by side with the scene in um, at Helm's Deep when Aragorn is talking to Haleth, um, that young, the young boy who's afraid before a battle. He's oh. frightened. 
That right. scene and the dialogue in that scene is so perfect and so Tolkien-esque that like you can't even really, you know, it's on a different level. It's on a different playing field. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. I think is very um, unfortunate. But what I will say to the showrunners, you know, more just get more of that Tolkien dialogue, infuse it in there. There's a little bit. We just need a little more and we'll yeah. be golden. We'll be golden because everything else is great. Yeah, I was glad to hear that that line in there. It felt a little shoehorned in, you know, even in the moment. Yeah, it was like, uh, okay, you know, yeah, just finding an excuse to use it. But, um, you know, that that's okay. And it did create finally a nice like mother son moment. There's a tenderness there, a vulnerability that. that Theo yeah. is showing. You know, I, yeah. I like seeing that for sure. That's right. Um, that's right. So you mentioned Isildur, and uh, there were some of my <laughs> favorite. They were kind of funny to me. These scenes between Isildur and Beric. I mean, this kid loves his horse. And it's great. Like, I, I you know, mm-hmm. they're establishing the importance between Numenorians and horses. And they're really, they're really leaning into it. Like, there's a whole scene between Isildur and Elendil where Elendil uh, calms Beric. And Isildur says, how do you do that? And, and he explains that horses can basically sense the emotions of their rider, you know, that the kinship becomes that close. And it's not a surprise when, you know, when you learn that, it's not a surprise that Beric would indeed be that close to his shoulder because they're sharing apples, not worried about germs. You know, I'm going to take a bite of my apple here. Beric, you want a bite? And I'll take another bite. Um, But the thing that made me laugh was that he goes up, he goes up on the top of the ship. He didn't leave Beric the apple, first of all. All right. You got to... You got to give Beric the apple. What are you taking it for yourself? So <laughs> yeah. selfish. And then so mean. He, Taunting. he throws it into the ocean. What a waste of an apple. <laughs> I know. If you're in the middle of the sea, like, yeah, you're not going to go throwing away precious food. Silly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what so are you silly. doing, Isildur? Go but back I down did, and give it to Beric. I did really, really like the dialogue between he and Galadriel. Like, that dialogue was very good. Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I do have. I'm gonna get a little. Can I? Can I get a little petty for a second? Aren't you always? <laughs> what am I not petty? It's a fair <laughs> point. Um, I've realized what's bothered me about the acting, and I know this is directorial. I know it because I've seen Morvith in other things, Morvith in other movies, and she's not. She has. She's wonderful. She's a very dynamic actor. This is yeah. not knocking Morvith Clark at all. She does not move her face at all like her lips hardly move and her face hardly moves at all like from the and nose you don't up. you don't like that no i don't i'm sure it's directorial but i need to see i'm and i know because the elves are supposed to be austere and right, otherworldly right. and different but i you know i i've got to have a little bit more from her she's like hardly moving her lips when she speaks and she's not moving her face hardly at all yeah, that's just so a I, gripe I it's, it's not, I mean, it's not petty. It's because that is definitely a choice. I think that you're right. That it is absolutely a deliberate choice. I noted it too, um, and I have noted it in prior episodes. But I, I don't dislike it because it is her way of being elvish. You know, they've got to do something. And mm. I, I felt a little bit weird. I feel like the elves just feel like men to me. They read like men. And not that I need them to be so like wildly different, but somehow they have to 
carry themselves. It's all like the way they carry themselves. And it's, it's, you have to read something subtle in there, but the way they carry themselves has got to be different. You know, the way they speak is calmness. Aaron Deer, uh, Michelle Cruz Cordova does a pretty good job of that. There are but a, he a lot of is moments so where he's very much calm. more, a thousand times more expressive though. Um, yeah, it's, it's more subtle with him. And, um, so that's why I said like it barely comes across to me with with Arendir, this the difference between men and elves with, with Galadriel, that sort of stillness, the um, the unflappability, not just emotionally, but like in her physical presence and even the way she speaks, like that is the way that Mordeveth Clark is um, trying to portray elvishness. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know that I like love it or that I I definitely like hate it. And it's just like a choice to be Elvish. And I just appreciate that they're trying to make a, do something to come across as Elvish. They're trying to distinguish them for sure. Um, I feel yeah. like we need to talk about, which, let's get into the heart of it. Let's talk about she and Adar and that scene. Oh, that was a wonderful scene. And everything with, with Adar, and this goes back even to the beginning of the episode, the scene with the orcs where, you know, he talks about this, the inspirational speech to the orcs. We learn a lot. I mean, he's saying we're here not as slaves, but as mm-hmm. brothers and sisters fighting for a home, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, wow, what, what, uh, I mean, that is a mission that we can empathize with, right? I mean, first of all, very clearly identifying the orcs as ex-slaves of Morgoth. And I mean, how can you hear that someone was a slave and not immediately feel bad for them and empathize and sympathize? Like it really challenges their position as you know, pure evil as, as antagonists. I mean, clearly they are, you know, they're opposite the, the folks they're trying to kill the people that the show has told us are protagonists. So in that sense, yeah, they're the bad guys, but also you can totally understand where they're coming from for, from a certain perspective. Like they're going about it in the wrong way. They're, they're trying to kill and supplant the people that are living in the Southlands in order to take that land for themselves. But it's, it's, you know, at the root of their uh, mission is a very relatable motivation. They've been slaves their entire lives. You know, right. how can you not empathize with them to a certain degree? Yeah. And we learn, I mean, yes, definitely. You're almost like, oh, they, they just want a home. <laughs> but we yeah, learned, uh, what I liked about this episode is we learned so much more about Adar. Like, number mm-hmm, one, we can definitively mm-hmm. say he is not Sauron. Not Sauron. Yep. Yep, um, that is done. Number two, he is an Uruk. I love how he keeps re- repeating that. We we prefer Uruk, you know. And oh, yeah. he's so perfect. His voice is so perfect. His like creepy stillness. His like creepy the calm is demeanor so is perfect. Yeah. His vo- the affect in his voice. Everything is. He is a wonderful villain. A plus villain. Um, yeah. But and I love every time every shot with him, there's like light and dark so perfectly intermingled, you know, in the barn. There's just with the light peeping through is great. But Mm. what he says, you know, about uh, resenting Sauron for killing so many orcs, he really, truly has this fondness for the orcs. Um, and it's so interesting that they're exploring this this um, inner conflict that Tolkien himself had, um, which is the nature of the orcs. Because Galadriel mm-hmm. saying, you know, you were created, you're a twisted creation, you were, you're an aberration, and he's saying, well, actually, we are a fl- we were we have the same creator as you do, the yes. one, you know, yes. Arrow Iluvatar. Yes. Um, 
and that is something yeah Tolkien never really resolved um in his own mind so it's it's interesting that they're that they've chosen to kind of to play with that and and we'll see how far that they take this yeah so uh, I would encourage people to go back and check out episode 42 where we talked about this in great detail for a long time with uh the uh reading Tolkien pod guys um because we did that episode right after we got some stills of the orcs and we saw the practical effects and they looked great and everybody was excited. And um, there were some little nuggets in the, in the images that just made me think, well, maybe are they going to humanize the orcs in some small way? And so we started exploring that right in great detail. So go back and listen to that episode for like the really, really deep dive. We're only going to be able to skate across the surface in this discussion, but this episode they really went for it. I mean, they fully like head on attack this idea of like, what are the, not just the orcs origins, but like, what does it mean in terms of whether or not they are good or bad, whether or not they are uh, purely evil antagonists or they are, they in some way victims. And they really kind of advanced the notion that they are victims. And I think as the audience, we are supposed to empathize with them, which, Oh, that's, it's it's a it's a challenge. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, in that episode with the Reading Tolkien podcast, we kind of talked about how, from a metaphysical perspective, you know, the orcs being essentially elves that were then captured and enslaved and corrupted and and mutilated, that 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 origin story positions them as as victims, and that they they should be uh, you should be able to sympathize with them and feel bad for them, um, but they're not really used that way in the narrative. Um, they, you know, that element of their backstory and their humanity isn't really explored in the Lord of the Rings or even the Silmarillion stories, wherever we see orcs, they're always viewed as enemies by the protagonists. Right. And so we're like, well, the narrative function of orcs is basically to be the enemy, even if they're kind of a, uh, you know, they're not monsters. There is a, a human element to them, a recognizably human element, but they're like bad humans, you know? And, um, and so we're, I'm not sure how I feel about the idea that all right that they're going to change that they're really going to dive headfirst into the the complexities of their backstory and say like no they are potentially victims and we should relate to them in in some respect because Adar says and you pointed it out we're all children of the same God essentially we all have the you know secret fire in, in us you know and Galadriel basically spits in his face at that notion. And you know how I felt in this scene, setting aside the lore and all this interesting stuff that we were just talking about in that scene, I'm just, I'm buying into what they're presenting on the screen. And if it's different, it's different. I felt bad for Adar in that moment. I felt like I understand your pain, right? I I feel your pain. Mm -hmm. And then when Galadriel just basically spits on that and says, no, you're evil. And I'm going to wipe you all out. I did not like Galadriel in that moment. Like that was a flaw. That was not a good thing for her to be feeling or saying. And in that moment, I was like, Galadriel, you got some problems. And Adar calls that out. That's the other interesting thing they're playing with is they're saying like, she's, you know, it's very clearly coming up many times. She's becoming the thing that she most hates. You know, this vengeful, angry force in the world. Um, Right. And right. they're definitely and like Halbrand stops her, that. and Halbrand, Halbrand stops, stops her. her, and Galadriel Halbrand, says, "Thank I'm you just, for stopping me." Thank you for stopping you me, know? Halbrand. I'm more it's, confused than ever. Let's. Oh my goodness. I mean, you okay? So let's talk about Halbrand. Uh, uh, let me tell you what I thought after this episode ended. I was like, "All right, the Halbrand is Sauron theories. Those are done. 
this episode basically. No, put I, the don't nail in the so. coffin on that. I don't think so. I don't think that's done. what I, they're definitely not. They're hundred percent not. No. But I felt that way um, because um, we, we have a scene between Halbrand and Adar, and Adar has told told Galadriel like basically, I know Sauron and I hate his guts, and he even indicated like I killed Sauron. So. Adar would know who Sauron is. That's what was being conveyed in those scenes. And then Adar and Halbrand go toe to toe. And uh, Halbrand's like, do you know who, do you recognize me? And Adar's like, I don't freaking recognize you, bro. Did I hurt someone you love? And it comes up again. It comes up again when he says, who are you? And Halbrand does not answer. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the same exchange, but yeah. Um, In the same dialogue. Yeah. And uh, so... Okay, even if so, here's why it would not make sense to me, and it still does. It never really fully made sense. I never bought into the theory. I understand all the arguments for Halbrand to Sauron. I never. There's some things that just still don't fit for me, um, and there are some things in this episode that still don't fit. So, for example, if Halbrand is Sauron, why? Okay, and let's let's say for the sake of argument that Sauron had a different form when he interacted with Adar, right? And that Halbrand yeah. is a new form. Why would yes. Sauron, as Halbrand, look at Adar and say, "Do you recognize me?" Like you know, expecting expectantly, like he should. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, why would he ask that question? It makes no sense. And I've heard some people theorize, well, he was he was asking because he wanted to make sure that Adar couldn't recognize him, to like keep his cover. But that doesn't make any freaking sense because if he wanted to keep his cover, he would just kill Adar, you know, like uh, it doesn't make the exchange does not make sense in that scene mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Halbrand to be Sauron. There's no reason for him to say what he said. Hmm. I can see okay. from your face that you disagree. No, I don't disagree. I'm listening and I said I'm more confused than ever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I can't like one way or the other. I don't know. It's I think it's still entirely possible that he is. Sauron because you see this eternal struggle and it's so mysterious and it's also possible that he is just a leader of the Southlands who will eventually fall to yeah the dark forces I, I, I think I'm still more in the camp of Halbrand is a Nazgul right because we know that some mm. of the Nazgul were great kings of men some of whom are also you know kings of the Easterlings or Southlanders and so uh, tragic, ta- yeah. You know, um, uh, Kamul was a king of the Easterlings, or a uh, chieftain of the Easterlings, which the Southlanders aren't being referred to as Easterlings per se. But, you know, there's nine of them, so there could be other other kings. He could also be the witch king of Angmar, you know. The theory that I like the best, actually, is, um, you know, all the, the, the ghost army that Aragorn resurrects from the Paths of the Dead. Oh, I've heard this one. Mm-hmm. Right? The reason that they are doomed and cursed to stay and you know to not enjoy their eternal rest upon death and but they're rather their souls are tied to the rocks or whatever and that they have to uh they have to serve aragorn when he calls them up is because they were a a kingdom of men from middle earth who swore an oath to aid isildur uh, in the fight against sauron and they betray their oath and isildur curses them and it's really not his curse but rather their betrayal of their oath that cause their spirits never to depart and then they're you know they're they're tied to middle earth until aragorn is Sildur's heir um once they help him and basically make good on their oath and he can release them and, and then they finally die so the theory goes that 
Halbrand is the leader of the this kingdom of men that betrays Isildur. And that really tracks for me because we're seeing Isildur and Halbrand meet in this episode, right? Mm. And so there's a relationship that's going to form there. We see mm-hmm. them interact in the battle. <gasps> there um, we go. So that's the theory I like the best by, yeah. by Amon. Even more, I like that a lot. Something even more curious is that the theme bind to me, bind yourself to me, bind it to me, that keeps coming up again and again. Mm-hmm. So it's come mm-hmm. up yeah. twice in the relationship with Galadriel. That's going to have some significance, you know, yeah. either a I mean, romantic e- significance or otherwise. I mean, that's echoing what Sauron was doing with the with the ring a little bit. So, yes. you know, like in that scene with Halbrand and Gladriel where he's like, I felt it too, and I want to bind that feeling to myself, to my soul forever or something. I forget exactly what he says, but, you know, that does kind of feel like a little ringish. But it could also be, not that that's something, so the theory goes that that's something that Sauron is saying, and so then he creates the ring to, uh, you know, preserve that feeling eternal. Um, that it's like Sauron is in love with Galadriel, so he's going to create the ring to like preserve Doesn't that work, love yeah. and bind her to him. It's like that feels very, very weird to me. Um, it could also just be that Halbrand is going to be a king of men that wants the same thing and that Sauron comes along with a ring and a solution. And that's why he falls under Sauron's sway. That just makes more sense to me. He'll use it. Um, yeah. Yeah. That fits. Okay. Well, yeah, still mystery. I, I jumped and- on I jumped on Twitter after the episode and I was like, I saw again in my head, I was like, yeah, this I mean, this theory is basically all but totally kaput. Um, just because that interaction with Adar and Halbrand, I could not see how people could think that Halbrand is Sauron after that exchange. And I jumped on Twitter and like half of Twitter was like, Yeah. Sauron, conf- Halbrand is Sauron, is confirmed. Like they saw the exact same scene and got the exact opposite conclusion out of it. It just blew <laughs> my mind, which is totally fascinating. I think that's the mark of like a good kind of mystery box, a, you know, a, a good, good misdirection. It's keeping yeah. everyone guessing and they're seeing different things in the same scenes. I was consoled in that even though there's a, still a lot of mystery box elements, this episode stands on its own two feet like this was good television by anybody's standards i would rewatch this episode you know even though there's so many mysteries involved even once i know how it ends how it all ends i would rewatch this it was great there was i've kind of changed my thinking about the whole mystery box problem uh quote-unquote problem you know people are saying oh mystery box isn't good because once the mystery is solved then there's no joy in rewatching it um, I think well, that I think may be true. Well, I think they're saying if there's too much of that, if they're relying too heavily yeah. on that. Yeah, yeah, If you go too far, like, if it, that's true if it's like a true mystery box, like a real whodunit where the actual point of the narrative is to discover X, like to unlock the mystery. That's not the point of these narratives in, in this show. There, there are mystery elements in them, but like, you know, the point, the point of the narrative is not to discover who Halbrand is. The point of the narrative is not to discover who the stranger is. Those mysteries are secondary. They're ancillary to the actual narrative in the show. Um, and I think it's actually going to enhance rewatchability because once we know how everything turns out, we'll be like all these looks and all these scenes that are ambiguous and could go one way or the other. We're going to find new meaning in them. You know, we're going to find new click? layers of meaning. Yeah. So I think it'll enhance rewatchability at least the first rewatch maybe even the second rewatch, then maybe it tapers off after that. But it, I, I, I'm not that concerned about the mystery components of this show making it uh, 
something you can only watch once. That's my new my, my new vibe on that. Your new vibe. I mean, there's plenty of like wonderful elements outside of the mystery box too that would keep probably keep me coming sure. back. You know, for and sure. this was the strongest for me. This was the strongest episode thus far. Um. Um. So if it keeps yeah, trending know. this yeah. direction, if it keeps trending this direction, like absolutely, I'll rewatch it. I'm sure I'll rewatch it anyway. But, but so yeah. So something that I thought was interesting about the the Numenorians coming in to save the day scene, I I didn't love the way that was executed. I think it could have been done a lot better. So when I was watching, so we knew from early scenes, okay, the Numenorians are coming in. They show the map. You know, it's gonna take a day to travel in it's a day's sail to like get up to where we're trying to go so we already have from the outset a sense of how long it's going to take the numerians to get there it's the morning um when they're sailing in the sun is rising and you don't necessarily register all of that consciously while you're watching it but uh you know in retrospect i'm you know thinking through, okay like we're getting this information but then we cut from the numenorians and we spend a lot of time with the southlanders like so much mm-hmm. time that we almost forget the numenorians are out there and we almost forget that the Numenorians will come in and save the day. Like, I honestly, I didn't know how that was going to play out. Um, it was only when this, the battle for the Southlands got so dire, it was like, oh, there's no way they could survive this unless the Numenorians come in and save the day. Okay, so we get into that moment when the Numenorians are going to come in. I wish they had not telegraphed that it was happening. Like, the way they cut the scenes... It, it cuts away to the Numenorians and we hear the thunder of the hooves and the, the horses riding in for like 30 seconds. It's like, so you're watching them ride in to save the day. I would have preferred if we kept the perspective of the Southlanders. We stayed with the South, mm-hmm. Southlanders all the way up to the moment where the Numenorians swept in because we're afraid for the Southlanders because we're seeing yeah. things from their perspective. And I wanted to feel the relief when yeah. the Numenorians come in to save the day. And it's this so was, uh, true. this was, What's that Tolkienian word? It's too late, so I'm forgetting it. But you catastrophe. It was mm-hmm. a uca- catastrophic moment. 100% you catastrophe. Yeah. Unlooked for. And the the profundity of the catastrophe is best experienced from the perspective of the when person who's being saved. You don't know it's coming. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And they I, kind of undermine totally that by, by the way they shot it. Yeah. Yeah. And it took the pressure off, too. I was like, oh, they're going to be okay. Numenorian uh-huh. army is going to come kick butt. They'll be fine. <laughs> right, Whereas I would have right. been so much more stressed out. Like, are they going to wipe everyone out now? Like there was never that question in my mind, you know, that, yeah, keeping like the tension high because I knew they were going to come save the day. Although, I mean, those scenes were so brutal where they're they're in the cabin and he's stabbing. He orders them to stab them all slowly one by one. Those were so gruesome and like intense. That was hardcore. I it mean, was hardcore. Seriously. I mean, I lay liked it. It was verging on a little too much, but it was so intense. You know, the scene where Bronwyn's injured and he and he has to um cauterize the wound. So intense. Um mm-hmm. yeah, there were some real gruesome, gory things here. Uh that certainly yeah. were surprising for me. Um like I said, and so like the scene you just called out, you know, in an action packed episode where it would have been really easy to fall into the trap of just doing fight scenes. They spent a lot of time mm-hmm. with the scene that you described where it's like, that's not a fight scene. That is a mm-hmm. people are captive and um, Adar wants something and he's going to hurt. And so Theo has a choice. He has to mm-hmm. watch people die. And 
Uh, it's not Arendir that speaks up to save Bronwyn. It's his son, right? So that was interesting. Arendir oh, didn't, yeah. didn't give in. It was Theo. And, um, you know, these are dramatic moments where violence is used to fuel the scene, but it's not the point of the scene. Right. Um, and there was a lot of that type of I think that's like a, those scenes are a good example of what we were talking about. Yeah. And what an ending. Holy cow. I mean, I love that. the I love the twist. That the sword is a key. It's a key. Well, it, it's not Unleash really a twist the... because Aaron, you called it a key in the yeah, last episode. But, I mean, we didn't know what it was for. Yeah. So I thought it could well, have been. Did you? So, OK. Twist revealed. We know what the sword is for. How did you like how that played out? Like, oh, I thought it was great. Um, OK. I liked it. I liked the visuals. I liked that. um I liked that we're seeing Mount Doom emerge. I like the creation of Mordor. We're witnessing the creation of Mordor, a very this very significant yeah. place that will be significant for the rest of the series. Um, right. Our guy Waldrig. Ugh, Waldrig. What yeah. a dumb dumb. <laughs> Definitely like playing. For so the I was confused. Game, I was confused why Waldrig would be the one that Adar would entrust with this incredibly important task. Because like, he beheaded he, one of his own. Yeah, but he's literally got all these orcs who he refers to as children. Children. Which, side side note, do you think that a lot of them actually are legitimately his children? No. Like, and that that's not that, a euphemism? I don't want to go down that rabbit hole at all. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not even joking. Like, I, So he's one of the early orcs that was captured and corrupted by Morgoth, right? How do you think orcs procreate? Like, it was probably forced procreation. I guarantee you... That Adar has a bunch of actual orc children around. Oh no! Like a lot. Oh, mm, okay, gross. <laughs> like, but I don't know if they're point. all legitimately what? his children, but like he probably has a number of le- actual offspring. They're all bastards because he never married their orc <laughs> mothers. I don't know. Uh, I don't yeah. even know. That's a good question for a later time. Um, but yeah, the, the, I don't the, know. So he he loves his orc children, right? Mm-hmm. He, these are his people. Why would he not entrust this important task to one of his orc children? And the explanation that someone proffered on Twitter was um, that in order for the sword's magic to work, it has to be blood of a human. Mm-hmm. That it can't be orc blood. That 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 because and we and that does track because I think it was Arendir who said earlier that. Um, the sword was the key to enslaving, like the 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 men of the Southlands and binding them to Morgoth, something to that effect. So, to the extent that the sword is designed to enslave or bind men to Morgoth's will or Sauron's will, it's because it's Sauron's sword. Um, it would it would track that it needs to be human blood. So that kind of makes sense. I was like, all right, all right, that's that's why it's Waldrig. That works. How did you like the Mount Doom scene, creation of Mount um, Doom? Well, I I knew that this was heading towards the, the creation of Mount Doom, and I like that. You know, I, I like that there's something going on for the creation of Mount Doom. The, you know, the idea that I guess Sauron commissioned a massive construction project with, like, you know, the, where the sword is is put into the ground and it's a, a literal key. It's like, it felt kind of Indiana Jonesy to me. It's like, all right, it turns. And then all these 
rocks move here and there. Like the dam allows the water to go through. Like this is an insanely convoluted and and complex construction project that resulted in like Sauron had a lot of time on his hands, though. We know he was stirring up evil for a long time. I guess, but then like the okay, so the way Mount Doom was activated was okay. You put the sword in; it causes the dam to be released, so the water rushes out, and then the water flows through the the tunnels that the orcs had have been digging for you know months and months or however long which that answers that question why are they digging tunnels it so it was to be a funnel for all the water to to send it into mount doom and then like when the water rushes in that causes the lava to like activate and explode okay so there's this really elaborate work and construction project that Sauron designed but it lacked one of the key components, which is the freaking tunnels that the water has to go through to get into Mount Doom. And like that was completely not done by anyone until Adar came along, who is not a servant of Sauron, or at least unless he's lying. Um, we're being led to believe that he is doing this of his own volition. This is his own plan. He's no, digging he, the tunnels. He, he wants a place for his children just as much as Sauron wanted a, a, a dark hub for his dark no, work. I, no, I know, but my point is Sauron created this elaborate, mm-hmm. uh, this uh, constructed this elaborate, you know, uh, clockwork-like mechanism that lacked one of the key components, which is the tunnels. Oh, yeah. Well, he didn't have time to finish it because he decided to take on his fair form as Halbrand and repent. <laughs> is that, I mean, is that the explanation? Like, he just didn't have time to, to, to finish it? He had a change of heart. He was like, eh, I have a second uh, chance. I might. He was repenting? Put on. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. So that could maybe be. Maybe there's an explanation, but it's, again, like, I'm going back to the. I want things to make sense. Yeah. And it seems like a it, huge plot hole. Like, it's. And it's. Not something that I can imagine they didn't think about because the entire Orc he, and Adar if, plot line is geared around t- digging these tunnels. Wait so a they minute. must understand like why wait a minute. Is, they had to do it. I know why. Um he was killed abruptly or not I mean he wasn't killed. We Sauron cannot be dead. I'm sure he's not dead. Of course he's not right, dead. Right. But Adar killed him and took away his bodily form before he could finish the tunnels. So Adar then decided, I'm gonna finish this tunnel. This project that he started, I already know about it. And I'm going to finish it because I want to see Mortar created. You know, my, my place for my people, my children. Like, that's a fine explanation for me. <laughs> if And if they give us that explanation, then okay, then, then, then it's an explanation. But they didn't give it to us yet, I guess, is the, the issue. <laughs> and I'm not content with, like, making up an explanation that's not there in the show. You're just not <laughs> you as know, creative that, as I am. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I, I, I could come up with all kinds of elaborate explanations. <laughs> I just want it to be in the show. You just want to be spoon fed? Mm-hmm. No, oh, I'm my kidding. gosh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I see what but you're saying. Also, doesn't it seem like a little bit funny that I don't understand the purpose behind this? Like, why do you need a magic sword that has to be then put into the lock and key and then, like, release the dam? You're just going to keep would, asking these questions and I'm just going to keep coming up with stupid why would Sa- Why would Sauron need that? Because otherwise thing? anyone could create Mount Doom and it has to be his in his camp. No, or nobody else. could make Mount Doom. It, nobody could make it. See? <laughs> 
it just feels like such a MacGuffin. It's such a MacGuffin. It's like, I don't understand why Sauron would need to make the sword. You know, it's, it's such an elaborate MacGuffin. Yeah, you got me there. <laughs> I thought it was cool until now. You're just raining on my parade. No, it's no. a cool MacGuffin. I mean, I you know, it's a cool MacGuffin. There's lots of cool elements in there. It's like it's got all the trappings of something that feels cool. It's just, you know, it seems totally fabricated, and it doesn't make sense to me why <laughs> Sauron would ever go to such elaborate lengths to 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 do it in this way. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. True. They could have just. They could have just like done it. Yeah, they could have done it differently. I think. I think ultimately, like for the casual viewer, hmm, I don't know. But maybe once again, maybe the casual viewer is like you saying like, well, in world, I don't even have a reference of the lore. Like, why does he need all this crap? Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah I don't even, I'm not vis- even thinking about the lore I think right I was now. thinking about the visuals. Like, oh, this looked really cool. Visuals looked really gorgeous. good. Vi- I li- oh, like, that's what I was thinking about is, oh, the actual like seeing it come to life and then the you know meteors they're not meteors the fireballs yeah. raining down right. terrifying and galadriel standing there as it just sort of watches oh, yeah. over her like all of that was so powerful for me that i didn't stop uh, to ask these questions oh i feel oh yeah um, all of that was great you know what the the scene with the water falling down the length of the entire volcano and landing in the lava you know yes. what scene that reminded me of from the films the very beginning it reminded me of gandalf the beginning of two towers gandalf fighting the balrog Mm. and this long extended scene where they're falling 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 down the endless chasm yeah um into the into the water obviously there's a lot of differences but it was the the wideness of the shot how long it took the water to you know it felt like the water was flowing very slowly into the volcano into the lava the same way it's like you watch gandalf and the balrog fall very very slowly into the mm. water um, because it's such a long way that the framing of that shot felt very reminiscent of that to me which i really enjoyed yeah ooh, good catch yeah a lot of artistic very artistic shots once again like this might have been the most artfully done episode even though at first glance is the most like action heavy Marvel-esque episode. It was just, it was, there was an artistic aspect to it. Yeah, that I think absolutely. Put it a cut above. Surely. There's kind of, the, do you think the average viewer, I mean, the ending, it seems to suggest like everyone's dead. There's like a blast of yeah. like lava. <laughs> everyone's right. going to be dead. You know, yeah. so if you're not tracking the trailers, which if you track the trailers and you would know that people aren't going to die, or at least Galadriel's not dead. Um, and of course, like these are half of our protagonists or more than half, they can't all be dead. So there's like a certain just basic like n- narrative logic there. But they're trying to indicate like it's a cliffhanger. They're all going to be dead because of the, the, the lava, right? So that's an interesting way to end it as well. Yes, yes. I mean, if I didn't know any better, I would think the village was wiped out. And maybe yeah. a significant portion of the villagers were wiped out. You know, we don't. Yeah, know. I I bet there will be a lot of people dead for sure. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of death and destruction, no doubt. Um, I think. Do you think any of? Okay, here's a good question. Will any of our main characters die? Hmm. Ah, uh, you know, I thought Bronwyn was a goner for sure. Me too, uh, but she survived the arrow. Like what? I thought. I feel like one of them's going to die. Bronwyn. Well, we or already Aragon, know right? which ones die. Where do you know which ones die? You and I do. Based on the lore. How do we know? What do you mean? 
Elendil dies. And oh, Gil-galad well, uh, dies. Gil-galad yeah, yeah, yeah. dies. Elendil but dies. Way, 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 way in it's, the future, not, yeah, not now. But, yeah, but we might see that in this series. I'm oh, I'm not okay. Like, let me at reframe the end my question. Of the I'm not asking who dies in this series. I'm saying, does anybody die from the the volcanic ash? Oh like, from this oh, incident. No. no. Okay. I don't think so. Okay. I think Bronwyn nobody that we care about. Yeah, like I would have said, I would have said, oh, Elendil, except that I know when Elendil dies. Only, I would have said that only because we got that nice moment, nice exchange between he and Isildur, which like the dialogue was kind of cheesy there, but okay. When it was a and, tender father-son moment. It was like, a tender was father-son a, moment. It was a real, real hug too. Like he was- You tend to love those so, scenes and I tend to be like, okay, I don't know. <laughs> heart of stone over here no it's just like the language it's the dialogue it's not that great but um but i would have said since they resolve that issue elendil's a goner mm. like goodbye they're gonna kill him but right, i right. know that he lives longer right because he has actually a yeah to it, play so it just setting aside the books and just the show it would actually make a lot of sense for elendil to get killed off like yes. either in this episode or sometime soon, right? Because yeah. that, that would then become a part of Isildur's pain, a part of Isildur's story and his growth as a character. He exactly. has to like, find his way without his father. And, like, they had this conflict, but they came to a good understanding. And they resolved it. Right, right, right. But I know that that, does not, that is not the case. So, no, I don't think any of our, our people die just yet. You know, the best news and a character that we know did not die, and I'm so excited, is Adar. I'm yeah. so glad yeah. that he's not dead. Oh, he's such a good villain. I said it once. I'll say it again before we wrap up. I just cannot wait to see how this all goes down with him because we know he yeah. doesn't like Sauron. And Sauron's- This is- Go ahead. Sorry. The big enemy of the show, you know, the big villain. But yeah, he's he's fantastic, fantastic actor, great backstory- you know, yeah. it's all good. It was such a Bond villain moment, the way that his arc played out. You know, mm-hmm. he gets captured. Uh, he's tied up. He's totally at their mercy. But no one knows he actually has the plan in the works. And they don't know it, but they're already doomed. You know, Waldrig is out there and does his thing. And uh, and he escapes. He somehow slips his bonds and sneaks off. I don't. I think maybe he like, because he had his ear to the ground because there's a tunnel underneath so mm-hmm. he could hear the the water coming. So I think he like maybe escaped into the tunnel and found his way out somehow. That's or he could have he could have escaped any number of ways. But he's definitely still alive. I'm so glad. I hope he's not just a season one villain. I think this might be the last we see of Adar in this and season. And tell actually. people how you know that he's still alive. Well, there's a sh- I mean, there's a there's a shot. Um, you know, we saw him tied up and then it when the lava or the red ash, basically when the Mount Doom erupts and the the red sort of coats the town, we go back to that room where he was tied up and he's not there. So it doesn't bother you that they didn't spell out how he got, how he escaped because you're bothered by other stuff. <laughs> you're trying, no, that's not. <laughs> not the same thing. That I'm is just, not something I'm that, just not kidding. on the same level. I'm just level. trying to gotcha. You're trying to get me. Working. You're trying to get me. <laughs> not Come at me, bro. You All right. All right. Well, I feel like this episode, as I said, uh, was my favorite, and there's so much. There's so much more, I know. We just really scratched the surface. We oh really did gosh. just scratch the so surface, much- but these are hot takes. We're going to get into it once again 
if you like what you're hearing and you want a more organized version and a more in-depth version, please do tune into our live streams every single Sunday. We're now starting just a tad later, 11.45 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Starting with the newbie panel, we have a fantastic panel of newbies that I chat with every week. We evaluate the show based on its own merits. Then we hand it over to Michael and we have a panel of experts and they chat all about the episode and go deep into the lore. So stick around for both of those. Uh, we share the art, new new um recipes talk talk about the recipes so yeah please do tune into the live stream and if you don't catch it live on sunday you can always watch it on the fellowship of fans youtube channel and we also put it into our podcast stream in two different episodes so i look forward to seeing all of you on sunday gonna see you again jen just a couple days and uh excited to talk about all the things we didn't get to (laughs) in this discussion there's just so much this is the thing that i love the most about the show is just talking about it honestly and i knew i mean that's why we started this podcast we knew we had fun talking about it and even the stuff that we have issues with i have so much fun getting into it uh with you and uh even when you try and get me i i I enjoy it uh (laughs) and we're chatting with great people on sunday so see you all on sunday and uh and then it'll be on to episode seven and then episode eight and then the season is over i can't believe it i know that went by like that no yeah we need more it's it's they need to turn this into a 10 episode series really they need to turn it into a 20 episode series like the old uh old tv shows totally 20 episodes we had it with vikings recently you know that was like only a couple years ago and that was great i'd be down for it just give us more writing, more plot. You can you can have all your special effects. I appreciate them. Sure, I like them. I would much rather have more plot and more episodes. Same. So, anyway, uh, we're digressing again. We'll end it here. Goodbye. <laughs> Farewell, and may the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. Until next time. Bye.